Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, Saul Marquez here. I get what a phenomenal asset a podcast could be for your business and also how frustrating it is to navigate editing and production, monetization, and achieving the ROI you're looking for. Technical busy work shouldn't stop you from getting your genius into the world, though. You should be able to build your brand easily with a professional podcast that gets attention. A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket, everyone. Saul Marquez here. Today, I have the privilege of hosting the outstanding Jeff Kaditz. He's the founder and CEO of QBio. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and advisor who has helped drive a wide range of technologies and businesses. His field of exploration uh, has included rockets, high-energy particle physics, anti-ICBM technologies, consumer electronics, mobile gaming, finance, enterprise software, network security, and biotechnology. So I'm, I'm excited to dive into the work that he and his team are up to at QBio. They're working on the physical of the future. So Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. So what is it that inspires your work in healthcare, Jeff? Um, I think, uh, I think a couple things. I think one is it's a little bit selfish, but I just have seen both or I myself, but also members of my family just had less than great experience with healthcare. And I don't think that we're any way unique. And it just seem it seems like a place where we have uh, a lot of room to improve. And I think that, uh, especially if you have the luxury of not worrying about tomorrow, which I think is a luxury for some of us then I think the best thing you can do is to use that time to think about how you can make tomorrow better for other people. You know, so that's, I think, a big part of it for me. And because if you don't, there's a huge amount of people who have to worry about tomorrow. And so they can't, or they have to worry about today. So they can't worry about tomorrow. Right. And so I think that, that it's those of us who have that privilege, I think it's our job to, to try and make tomorrow better. I also am just particularly fascinated by the human body. I think we understand the rest of our universe better than we understand what's going on inside of ourselves. And to me, as somebody who's you know, done scientific research on exploring different parts of the universe, I keep coming back to the fact that it's amazing how little we actually understand what's going on in inner space versus outer space. So I think that is a, another thing that inspires uh, me. I love it. Yeah, that's really great. And so appreciate you and kind of the, the approach you're taking with QBio and, and how we can take care of ourselves, the luxury of, of not having to think about tomorrow, but thinking about tomorrow. How are you doing it? What are you offering that's unique? Well, I think, I think first of all, I think what we're doing right now is, has been really a, some research to help us understand um, the requirements for what we ultimately want to do. But what's unique about us right now is um, fairly, I can fairly confidently say that we can gather more quantitative information about a human body in a shorter period of time for cheaper than anyone else. As a result of that, we are also able to very efficiently understand what's changing in a person. And I don't mean in a single dimension, but I mean in a very comprehensive way. And then lastly, we're able to actually prioritize the importance of what's changing in a person contextually based on that person's medical history or genetic risks. 
So I think it's those three things currently that we're doing that make us very unique. But I think that is the kind of tip of the iceberg for where we really, what we're really trying to do. Fascinating. So talk to us about the approach, right? You've got this Q scan, the Q membership, why Q? And, and tell us a little bit more about that. It's pretty dorky. It's simply quantitative. That's really oh, okay, what it gotcha. means. I think <laughs> it's, it, it's really, I mean, everybody talks about medicine as an art, but I strongly believe we can make it a science. And part of that, the first step of that is actually quantifying our biology. And, and there's a lot yes. of tools and we're entering this age of kind of biological digitization. And obviously, I think the kind of asymptotically, you can kind of say, all right, well, inevitably, we're going to have digital twins, right? Or models of our physiology that are refit during a physical and so that we can make individualized forecasts about a person the same way we make forecasts about the weather today. But I think that that's where the quantitative part comes from, though, really, is the first step was how efficiently can we quantify our biological state? Do we have all the tools we need so that in a short period of time, I can take a snapshot of our biological state and a reproducible way so that I can then start to measure what's changing? And this isn't really a new idea, honestly. This is typically called the scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. If I, I can take any scientific discipline that's arisen in the last really thousand years or so. And really when things become pseudosciences or turn from pseudosciences into sciences, really when they become information sciences, right? And, you know, Tycho brought, like you talk about the invention of the telescope, right? What that did was allowed someone like Tycho Brahe to take hundreds and probably thousands of pages of recordings of the positions of the planets. 400 years later, Kepler came along and fit those measurements to elliptical orbits so that he could predict the position of the planets. The thermometer right, revolutionized our ability to predict the weather. And obviously, combining humidity and pressure and wind direction allowed us to make forecasts about the weather. So really, the trend in all these places, when we develop the tools to measure a system in a commodity way, like in a cheap way, we can then measure how that system is evolving and changing. And then we can apply mathematical principles to those systems to make forecasts about the next measurement. And when those measurements fit, like when the prediction fits the next measurement, we say, we're starting to understand the rules that govern the system. And if you think about what, you know, understanding diseases in a person, it's really no different. It's can we understand changes so that we could forecast the next change rather than wait for it to happen so that we could potentially intervene early. And so really, I think of what we're doing is taking a method that's really been used to help us understand every single part of our world and applying it to our bodies. That's fascinating and truly different, right? I mean, you know, I talk to a lot of people, Jeff, you know, and the, the approaches are iterative. And I think this approach is definitely unique. Although you, you say it's nothing like innovative, the approach is great. I personally am a freak about numbers and, and measurements. So I love this. I actually do a DEXA scan twice a year. I like to know my numbers, right? And so I'm fascinated by this. So you walk us through it. You take an MRI and you do different things. Talk to us so about it, the so, process. So right now, today at our, at our kind of R&D facility in Redwood City, you can sign up for, for this service. And in about 60 minutes, we take blood, saliva, urine, comprehensive vitals, and scan your entire body non-invasive, no radiation. We also aggregate your medical history. So as you know, the first, in your first visit, we'll also do a genetic profiling. After that, it's, we, we don't use, we don't do genetic profiling, but after that, it's every, every incremental visit is the exact same for the most part. And we're really just kind of 
looking at what's changing and looking for trends or correlations between changes at a structural level or a chemical level, and then interpreting those changes in the context of your genetics or medical history or behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's really essentially what we're doing as a first step here. But it's the goal is to make this actually a standard much faster, much cheaper, so that you could deploy this to entire populations. And we actually are very close to being able to do that. I think actually within two years, this is the kind of thing that you could deploy to an entire population. That's exciting, you know? And so um, you go in for your first measurement of these various things. And I mean, can you tell anything from that first one compared to your genetics or is it is the power in, in the next visit where you could see base, compared to baseline? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, a lot of people might look at this as kind of fancy screening. I think our approach is actually very different. You bring up a good point is, can you tell anything from the first visit? And, and I think you can, but part of our, our philosophy really is that we don't believe in absolutes, right? And a single measurement at a single point in time compared to some like population average, which fundamentally I could go into much more detail, I think is a flawed concept. The idea of a population average or a population reference, especially in the era of we all have unique genetics. Mm-hmm. It gets more interesting as soon as you start seeing trends, but in, from an information theoretical perspective, it's also more interesting because you're boosting the signals of noise. Like if you're a person who's worked in EE or, you know, done a lot of any kind of signal processing or information theory, you understand that individual noises, even if there's a lot of accuracy and precision, you can be measuring just noisy systems. And especially things like your chemistry, like those things vary rapidly, right? And so by taking multiple measurements, even if they're spaced out over time, you're effectively boosting the signal to noise ratio, right? And looking at trends and those minor, like the jostling and the vibrations, um, the oscillations, you can kind of ignore. And so I think that's, that, that's really powerful. And again, it's not a new idea. It's saying, look, the signals you know, that are uh, changes in our body are roughly sinusoidal in some way. Lots of them. You know, we're pulsing. Like, you, you know, we grow and expand every day. Mm. Like, that's, that's fine. But what that really means is the idea of measuring us at a single point in time and comparing us to some reference rather than understanding like general trends, I think is a, the wrong way to go about characterizing disease. Here, here's a good, like the analogy that I've used in the past is, you know, imagine if I played you a single note on a piano and then said, tell me which song that's from. That's pretty hard, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what if I played you a series of notes? Then you can probably start to say, oh yeah, no, I recognize that tune. And that's because a song is actually made up of many different notes played in some time series order. Mm-hmm. I think Ultimately, we're going to discover the disease. Disease is really like a song. There's a progression, right? And if you try and capture a single measurement at a single point in time, many songs can have the same note, right? Yeah. But it takes a little bit more information for me to uniquely fingerprint a song. And if, uh, you know, Shazam, try Shazam. Try to play one note in Shazam and say, tell me what song that was. I promise you it won't work. Yep. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think this approach is key and being proactive about our health is is important. You know, everybody has to go, you know, if, if you're doing it right, you're going to go to your, your primary care once a year. If you're healthy, normal, you're going to go, you get your checkup and get everything, make sure everything's in order, right? But now you're offering something that's much more in depth. What would you say is the key difference and why? why, why I actually... Yeah. Well, I actually don't think we should go to a doctor once a year. I think on average, we should go less. 
Okay. And I think that, I mean, this gets to right at the heart of, I think, the key problem that we're ultimately trying to solve that uh, we haven't totally really unveiled the platform to solve this problem. But the fundamental problem that I see in healthcare is that we are simply, as a population, growing faster than we create doctors. Yeah. That's just true. Not only that, most doctors are opting to, if you're a general practitioner, you're opting for smaller practices because you want to spend time with fewer people. And that really is given rise to concierge medicine, or you go into a highly specialized area because you get paid better. Mm-hmm. But the idea, this kind of massive 2000 person panel, like no doctor really wants that. But the problem is, is that when you talk to doctors about preventative medicine or personalized medicine, it's like, okay, well, people need to spend, doc- I need to spend more time with my patients. That's fundamentally flawed. Like really that approach simply doesn't work if you just take like the original thing that I said, which is the population is growing faster than the number of doctors. That literally means we need solutions in healthcare that allow us to better utilize the most scarce resource we have, which is a doctor's time. So to me, the ultimate solution in primary care would be a system that could automatically tell doctors who they should spend time with and who doesn't need their attention this year, because that could effectively scale a doctor's time from caring for a thousand people to 10,000 people, because maybe only one or two out of 10 people need a doctor's attention in a given year. So it's impossible for a doctor to just uniformly say, I'm going to spend three hours a year. And I see there's companies that are being started right now that say, our doctors will see you as many times you want this year and spend at least three hours. It's like, that's great if you have the money, but all it's doing is accelerating healthcare inequity because the way healthcare is delivered right now is it's either first come, first served or who can pay the most or who has connections. If we want, and, and COVID has really highlighted this, we have completely failed to deliver care to those who need it first. And so the real, the real missing part of healthcare is how can we, automating human labor, extremely hard. I don't care what anybody says in AI. How do we automate how labor is used? I think that's the key question. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an interesting approach, Jeff, for sure. You know, it's, it's, it's unique. And when you take this approach at the population uh, health level, it is certainly becomes an efficient way, right? Of how to scale a well, doctor's time. We'll, 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 put th- time we'll put it this way. is like COVID, I mean, we've been building, we've been thinking about this for, I've been thinking about this for a better part of a decade or more even, but COVID has honestly been one of the, unfortunately, a great example for to prove all the points that early on we were trying to make. Because we want to, dist- like testing, think about COVID testing. We wanted to effectively test massive parts of the population. What do people do? Drive through testing. Is there a doctor there? No. Why would you have a doctor? Why would you have highly skilled labor doing gathering information that like an unskilled technician could gather, right? right. Or a, a, like a, you know, somebody with not 10 years of medical school, right? Mm-hmm. So in 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I can get my COVID antigen test right now as a drive-through. What if I said, why don't we do the same thing for your whole body? What if in 20 minutes I could measure everything about your entire body? You go home and you get a call from the doctor only if there's a problem. If you don't, if you don't hear from the doctor, you're fine. Why not? I mean, we know that, the, I mean, literally, we know that this is the most effective way to roll out like healthcare or especially collecting information about people at scale. Why wouldn't we conduct the physical exam the same way? Yeah. 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 No, it makes sense. And maybe it's just the mindset that, you know, it's ingrained in us that we got to go to the doctor once a year. Like maybe we don't. Well, I mean, think about it. A doctor's time is not cheap. So if you spend time, think about how much information a doctor can gather. They can ask you some questions. They can look at you, you know, and those can all, those are all valuable things, but I have a hard time believing given where we are in modern sensor technology that 
it will be possible, or even it is right now for a possible, for a doctor to gather more information than we can in 20 minutes. And so why would you, if a doctor's real unique skill is integrating that data and then making care decisions, why wouldn't we separate the gathering of information from making care decisions rather than conflating them? Yeah, no, this is great. And folks, you know, I love this discussion because it's different. And there are a lot of assumptions that we, uh, we make in healthcare. And, um, and I love Jeff's approach to this problem of scaling doctors. You know, we, we definitely have a big issue in this country and I welcome this fresh approach. So as you guys have built the tech and the company, what would you say has been one of the biggest setbacks you've run into and how has that made you guys even better? Um, biggest setbacks. Hmm, that's a good question. You know, in some ways, I was anticipating more setbacks, mm-hmm. but one of the biggest surprises, uh, let me tell you what the biggest surprises to me were sure. more than setbacks. Yeah. So one of the biggest surprises to me was I expected a lot more pushback from doctors. And I learned a lot talking to a lot of doctors about what they're really scared of and how they really view what we're doing. And I think, and it made me much more optimistic because I realized how doctors know how broken Doctors know they can't work harder. They're like, but how, we don't know how to work smarter. Like, you know, and it's not this, uh, you know, not to say that they're, they're they're helpless in any way, but they know that what they're doing simply doesn't scale, and and they want new ideas and they want to try new things, but they also work within. They're in some ways handicapped because they work in a system where trying new things, the only thing it can do is harm them. They are heavily incentivized to take zero risks, even if the risk is like extremely small. But they want to do better. I mean, I mean, think about it. If you if you become a doctor, I don't want to overgeneralize, but in general, it's like it's a noble thing to do. It's like I want to take care of people. I want to help people who feel helpless because, and I think that's a noble thing. Um, what I have found is there is a there are some very large companies in healthcare and some very anti-competitive behaviors that have made it extremely difficult for us to do what we want. And and you know, not to like call anybody out, but imagine if the equivalent would be. Imagine if Apple said that any application that you develop for the iPhone, we co-own. The biggest companies in healthcare, that's their approach to kind of developer ecosystems or people who want to add value on top of their products or their platforms. They think in a very zero-sum way. And that is rather than what is going to move care forward and how can we help more people. And I think the reason is because these guys are typically so entrenched that they're more scared of preventing other people from innovating than they are focused on innovating themselves. But it's amazing. Like I actually don't know some of the um, co-licensing that occurs with these big companies and anti-competitive behavior that happens. I'm shocked that it's not investigated because it's. I think it does more harm than almost any other part of the healthcare system that I'm aware of. But yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. It's like there's you're completely unincentivized to work with some of these technologies, their technology platforms. Because again, like I said, imagine if part of the Apple's developer agreement was we own whatever code you write for our platform. That's literally what these people do. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've been surprised that physicians haven't pushed back as much, that they're welcoming this approach. Yeah. Well, I think that the biggest, the number one fear that I hear is around number two, like most common things are physicians feeling like they're already overworked. So it's like, if you give me all this information, it's just going to, I don't know what to do with it. It's going to be information overload. I think the other one is, you know, false positives. Mm-hmm. 
And I think we've done a pretty good job addressing that specifically with information overload. I think we've shown people that with modern software, you can summarize an enormous amount of information quite effectively. And, and I'll give you my favorite example in the world, Google. Like when I search Google, it searches trillions of documents and summarizes the most important ones for me. Yep. So if Google can summarize, you know, on a single page, the most important, most relevant things for my question, I think we should be able to solve this problem for doctors. And so I think that doctors have seen, they are now start to believe that, you know, that software doesn't have to be AI or scary. It can just be a tool that helps them do their job, right? Again, like the same way I think of Google helps me find what I'm looking for. Yeah, I'm totally digging it. I think it's uh, the opportunity is big. The second thing, as far as the false positives, is when you are looking at a lot of false positives come because when we look at a human body, and all human bodies are somewhat unique, there might be some platonic form that represents a male body and a female body, but they're all a little bit different. They really are. Like it's, a long, it's a very long tail. As we develop these tools to look inside of us, everybody's going to look a little bit different. And that means that having prior information of what your body looked like at a time before is so critical because if it hasn't changed or if it's stable, it's probably not a problem, right? But a lot of false positives occur simply because the first time a doctor looks inside of you, they see something that might be out of some normal or reference range, but you might've been born that way. right? And so if you can, it really comes down to, again, like there's a lot more signal in what's changed than what hasn't or a sing, any single measurement. And so I think that is the, the mindset. And actually, here, there's an interesting thought experiment that I've done with some doctors who've said that another, you know, some doctors, not a lot, say that they don't want to create anxiety in a patient who, you know, if they, uh, while they're waiting for their results. Mm -hmm. But I would argue, let, let me give you a, a spin on the service that we're kind of, that we've pilot, been piloting with individuals and doctors. What if you could do a Q exam, but we created like a time capsule for you and didn't allow anybody to see your results, right? We just stored them. So once a year you came in, we gathered all this information, we just stored it, but no one could look at it. I would argue that just doing this will be extremely valuable for any individual. And what if the criteria for cracking this thing open was that you had a symptom, some symptomatic issue, right? Because that's when this value become, this data becomes the most valuable is when a doctor is effectively trying to troubleshoot a problem. And so, you know, one of the things I said to doctors is like, if you're worried about, or even individuals were saying, I'm worried about what I'll find and say, well, I would argue that just collecting this data and not looking at it is a really good insurance policy because there's going to be a day because, you know, it's like death and taxes. I'll tell you what's inevitable. All of us will get sick and injured. All of us. And if I have a versioned history of the evolution of my body, its structure, its chemistry, and I can show that to a doctor who's trying to figure out why all of a sudden my right arm is numb. I guarantee you they're going to figure out what's wrong a lot faster if they have this information to start with versus the first time you have a major health issue, it's like they start gathering data, right? Because, and then they do this test and this test. And then before you know it, it's nine months and you've seen four specialists before they kind of get to the problem. And you just have to hope that it's not the kind of problem that in nine months can get 10 times worse. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. And I totally agree, right? Having that, that baseline will help, you know, will, will help if in the future, when in the future. It's guaranteed. Uh, yeah, you know, and so I love the approach. So is the equipment that you guys do use to run these tests unique? Is it different? The software is unique. Right now we use all off the shelf, at least to gather the information. The analysis, no, but everything is you know, FDA approved. 
we will be making probably actually within a month an announcement about some technology that we've actually been working on that will that is really the key to us being able to set up like these effectively almost pop-up sites where that's what i was wondering full q exams full q exams you know i almost think of it as like a car wash for your body imagine if you could have these small footprint facilities where you go in and come out in 15 minutes later and you know that you just got everything about your body measured and you'll get a notification from your doctor if they want to talk to you Mm-hmm. I should also add that this paradigm of separating where clinical decisions are made from where information is gathered about a body, not only does it lend itself to scale very well, it lends itself to telemedicine, right? Like, because you need collection sites based on population you know, distribution, but the doctor can be anywhere. So as far as when it comes to healthcare accessibility, simply like if you want access to the best doctors, it doesn't matter if you live near them anymore, if you deploy this at scale. Totally. Yeah, I love it. So you guys have your membership and today it's $34.95, so $3,500 to get this test done and you're in for a year. Who can access this Anybody. at this point? I think the uh, our IRB, exactly. the, only, the only people is, um, you know, you can't be younger than 18 and you can't be pregnant. And honestly, there's nothing we're doing that is, that's just the way uh, the IB was written, but I don't think there's anything we're doing that is actually, there's nothing invasive or harmful that would prevent you from doing those things. And ultimately, I think we imagine these physical exams being able to be done on anybody of any age or pregnant or not. Got it. And so, for instance, I'm in Chicago. So how do I do it? For now, it's, you have to come to California. Oh, okay. So right now yeah, it's in Cali, yeah. but you yeah. guys are working on a, on a way to, to scale this beyond. Oh, yeah. I mean, the idea is that you can put these roughly, we could put one initially, I think we could have one site per 25,000 people. So I think one site, um, we believe should be able to care for or collect information on an ongoing basis on for 25,000 people a year. Fascinating. So in terms of infrastructure, there's about 3000 people per gas station, it gives you a sense of the scale of, of deployment you'd need to cover entire populations. Fascinating. All right. So I guess I have to get on a plane to go do this. (laughs) <laughs> for now yes for now all right no, that's fair um and folks if you're curious about this definitely check them out it's q.bio all the details are there but uh obviously it's uh critical to test the status quo and jeff is certainly helping us do that with with his approach and and the approach that his team is taking jeff give us a closing thought and let us know what we should be thinking about and then the best place that the listeners could uh reach out to you or somebody on your team if they want to learn more. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think that the key here is that getting sick doesn't have to be a surprise. I think that we have the technology today and it can be scaled to a point where we can know way, way, way in advance if we're trending towards an issue. And I think that that is, uh, I think that is the important takeaway is we don't have to, getting sick doesn't have to be a surprise, like especially when it comes to existential threats. Most diseases are exponential kind of progressions. And so there's no reason we shouldn't be able to characterize these trends at their earliest stages and be able to forecast how you change that trajectory. And I think that in really doing it in a personalized way is really what makes it scale. Like personalized medicine as a, you know, people talk about is not the end goal. I think the reason you have to personalize medicine is to make prevention scalable because we are all unique. And if we want to account for those differences, we need to have a system that is smart enough to understand what it looked like for me to start to get sick versus what it would look like for you to start to get sick. And that's why understanding your past and the baseline is so critical. Um, as far as like getting a hold of me, I'm on Twitter. My Also, my email is just jeff at q.bio. 
Love it. Jeff, thank you for today. This has been really interesting and uh, uh, stimulating for me and I'm certain for the listeners as well. Keep up the awesome work and excited to see you guys scale this thing out. And either I'll be in California doing this with you, or maybe you'll beat me and, and get a get a clinic open here in, in Chicago. But appreciate all you're doing, man. Great. Appreciate it. Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners. No podcast? No problem. Launch a professional podcast you'll love in four weeks. Most people hire production companies to edit and distribute content that sounds bad and does nothing for their revenue or their network. But you could turn the key to a made-to-order podcast and skip all the pitfalls that make 90% of shows discontinue after five episodes. We've got the expertise, the elbow grease, and you're back on this one. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.